0: Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students. And RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equipment to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. I love that we can sing the song that we just sang uh, because it's a song about sorrow, and uh, I love that there's an admission in that song that that sorrow is actually a, a huge part of the Christian life. Um, that weariness, right? We're talking about weariness and sorrows and waves of trouble rolling over us and gloomy doubts prevailing, and there's an honesty there that I think is really important for us as Christians um, to recognize, or even if you're not a Christian, to recognize that Christianity is not about um, pretending like everything is okay when it's actually not. And so I I appreciate that about what we just saying, and I actually think that that uh, dovetails nicely with what we're talking about tonight. We've been studying the book of Exodus all semester. And in the book of Exodus, what we have seen is that there are true stories here. They really happen and that they actually have universal application, Um, that they help us to make sense out of our lives in this world. And tonight, um, the the verses that we're going to look at are going to help us to make sense out of our longings. And in some ways, the the song that we just sang are about when our longings for life in this world are not met. And this passage is going to help us to make sense out of that, because we are fundamentally creatures of of longing. We are creatures of desire. It's it's who we are. Jamie Smith is a philosopher. He puts it this way. He says the center of gravity of the human person is located not in the intellect, not in the mind, but in the heart. The heart is the existential chamber of our love. And our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. The human heart is part compass and part internal guidance system. The longings of our hearts both point us in the direction of the thing we desire and propel us toward it. What is Smith saying? He's saying, listen, we are primarily creatures of longing, creatures of desire. And the things that we long for both set the course and are the fuel sending us towards the things that we long for the things that we desire. And the problem with that is um, that we long for lots of things and we rarely get the things that we long for. We rarely get the job. We rarely get the romantic relationship. We rarely get the acclaim. We rarely get the reputation. Whatever it is that we long for, we rarely get it. And sometimes we actually do get it and it still leaves us wanting more. I I think I've mentioned this to you guys a, a, uh, a few times number of years ago, Jim Carrey, you guys know who Jim Carrey is, right? Please say yes. Um, star of Dumb and Dumber. Have you guys seen that movie, by the way? All right, we're going to have a movie night. We're going to watch Dumb and Dumber. Um, it's good for your soul. Uh, but Jim Carrey, he was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from like the Kids' Choice Awards or something like that. And during, they, they give those away apparently, and during his acceptance speech, he said something to the effect of, I hope that everyone gets rich and famous and accomplishes all of their dreams so that they can realize that that's not the answer. Because what care, I mean, here's a guy who has accomplished everything. Um, He's rich, he's famous, people love him. He's had a hugely successful career. And yet he's saying, I've gotten everything I've wanted and it's not the answer. And what Carrie understands is that we are fundamentally creatures of desire, but that even when we get the things that we most long for, that we most desire, they still leave us unsatisfied. That deep down, we seem to, to long for something that is just out of our grasp. It is just out of reach. And C.S. Lewis talks about this concept in his book, The Weight of Glory, which I think is my favorite C.S. Lewis book. And this is what he says He says, Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but it is the truest index of our real situation. In other words, what, what Lewis is saying is that that unfulfilled longing is actually the truest index of what it's like to be a human in the fallen world. It is a, a very accurate depiction of what it means to be human, to long to be reunited with something that we feel cut off from, to long to, uh, to, be, to, to cross over the threshold of that we always feel like um, the door that we're looking on the outside of, to pass through it. And these verses that we're about to read are about passing through the door about finding uh, fulfillment to those deep longings. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at two passages from Exodus 25 and from Exodus 40, and they're printed there in your handout. So beginning in Exodus 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you, re- you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as i show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture so you shall make it and then we're going to skip ahead to exodus chapter 40 which is the last chapter of exodus the lord spoke to moses saying on the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put it in the ar- put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all round, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court." Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it, so that it may, may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons, those are the priests, to the entrance of the tent of a meeting and you shall wash them with water and put on air in the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest and you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them and as you anointed their, as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations this Moses did According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Since this is God's word and not mine, let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it this evening. Lord, we do thank you for this word. It is confusing. And there's a lot in here that doesn't really make sense to us. And so I ask that you would help us, that you would come and be our teacher, Holy Spirit. Teach us what it is that you're doing here through the tabernacle, uh, moving down into the midst of your people and why that matters. It's In Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So this ring here represents a promise. It represents a promise that my wife and I made to one another uh, almost 10 years ago in about a month. Almost 10 years ago we stood up before God and before our friends and before our families and we said, Nothing will separate us, nothing will separate us but death, not riches, not poverty, uh, not health, not sickness, um, for better or for worse, that no matter what happens, I am yours and you are mine. And this ring is is a representation of that promise, but it also represents um, the work that we have had to do to keep those promises. Uh, the joy and the sorrow, the happiness and the hurt and the forgiveness and the hope, and it, like all of that is wrapped up within and represented by this ring, everything that we have experienced in our marriage together. So it it symbolizes a lot. And when we look at the tabernacle, which is what we just read about from Exodus, it feels a little odd and a little distant and a little opaque. Why is God doing all this? What's up with all these details? Why is all this weird furniture in the tabernacle, like, what's going on here? But the tabernacle functions like my ring. It's a symbol. It represents a promise. It represents a deeper reality about the universe. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at two things. What is the promise that the tabernacle is making? And how does God fulfill that promise? What is the promise and how does God fulfill it? So first, what is the promise Some of you in this room, maybe a few times in your life, have resolved at the beginning of a year to read through the whole Bible. And you blaze through Genesis, because there's a lot of really interesting stories in Genesis, and you blaze through the first part of Exodus, as we've been looking at this semester, there's a lot of interesting stories there. And then you come to Exodus chapter 25, which we just started, and you get a little bogged down. Because there are mind-numbing details from Exodus chapter 25 to Exodus chapter 40, you get, you get a little reprieve in chapter 32 to 34. But other than that, it's 15 chapters of details about how to build the tabernacle. What kind of stones are going in there? What kind of curtains you need to make? And what kind of uh, fabric you need to use to weave the curtains together? And what kind of Uh, designs are you going to weave into that fabric and how are you going to build the Ark of the Covenant and what's going to go in the Ark of the Covenant and how many rings are supposed to be on the sides of the Ark of the the Covenant and how many poles are going through those rings to carry the Ark? Like so much detail for 15 chapters and at that point in the year, maybe it's March or February or whenever it is, you're like, I'm done, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And you're like, well, maybe I'll skip to the next book and then the next book is Leviticus and that's even harder to read and so you're just, you're out, you're done. What I want to do tonight, I, we're not going to go through all of those details, that would be uh, ridiculous, but what I want to do is to show you a few of those details and how they actually point to something very significant. In the passage that we just read from chapter 25, you may have noticed that God instructs the people to bring a bunch of stuff, and included in that stuff is onyx and other precious stones and gold and silver for the building of different parts of the tabernacle. In the very next chapter, in chapter 26, God instructs the artists to weave. There are these curtains that go all around the tabernacle in different places. And he instructs them to weave cherubim, which are a type of angel, into, uh, into the sides of the curtains that surround the tabernacle. The entrance to the tabernacle, we're told in another place, is supposed to always face east. That's where the entrance of the tabernacle is supposed to face. Seven times we hear the phrase in the next few chapters, seven times we hear the phrase, the Lord said, the Lord said. And after the seventh one, uh, after the seventh occurrence of the Lord said, we get instructions on the Sabbath, on a day of rest and how to enjoy a day of rest. And at the very heart of the tabernacle, the very center of it, behind all of the curtains and all of the veils and all of the altars is the very presence of God the unmediated, undiluted, glorious presence of God. Now, why is that significant? Why are all of those details significant? The reason is because the first time we see all of those details together in the Bible is at creation. At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that Eden, um, there were these precious stones like onyx, And other precious stones. And it was a place full of gold and silver. And the gold and silver there was pure and good. And after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, uh, God sets up a cherubim, an angel, over the gate. And where's the gate? It's on the east side of the garden. And we're also told, um, you know, you hear in Genesis chapter 1, you hear the phrase, the Lord said. And how many times do you hear it? Seven times. And after each one, what do you hear? You hear things like, let there be light. And after the seventh one, what happens? God rests. There's Sabbath. And we're told that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the day, that God's original design for creation was to make the earth his home, where he could be present with his people, and his people could be with him in perfect harmony. They, they had the unmediated, undiluted presence, the glory of God, In their midst. And because of that, everything about their world was right. There was no sickness and no sorrow and no disease and no sin and no death. They lived in the world that we long to live in. They lived in the world that we long to live in. They have everything that we long for. You long to live in a world without anxiety and insecurity. And so do I. And they had that. You long to live in a world without abuse and betrayal and divorce. And they had that. We we long to live in a world without poverty and without injustice and without homelessness and without oppression and chemical weapon attacks on innocent people and the threat of nuclear war. We long to live in that world, and they lived in that world. We long to live in a world of peace and justice and joy and love. And God longs for that world also. And that's why he gave us the tabernacle because what the tabernacle is meant to do is to be a microcosm is, to, is meant to be this this, smi- this tiny little um, this tiny little microcosm of the original creation where all things were right and good in the presence of God it's a miniature recreation where God is saying literally Bu- build for me this thing that looks just like it did in the original creation a, a small version of that, a scaled down version of what I did at the beginning of time when everything was right, when I was with you and you were with me. Now, why is he doing that? It's not just for nostalgia's sake. Like, hey guys, remember what that was like when everything was great before you ruined it with sin? Like, it's not, it's not for the sake of nostalgia. It's for, it's for a purpose. It's for a promise. Because what, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, it's not just, I want you to remember this. It's, hey, the world used to be this way and it will be this way again that I will recreate what has been lost. Anything that has been marred or broken by sin, I will put it back together. I will recreate it. Now, how do we know that? Because in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, at the very end of the Bible, all of the features of creation that we just talked about and all of the features of the tabernacle that we just talked about show up again at the very end of the Bible. We hear an angel saying, the dwelling place of God will be with His people. They will be His people, and He will be with them as their God. The throne room of God, the dwelling place of God, is depicted as a holy city. And that holy city is descending down to earth, and the walls of that city are adorned with jewels like onyx and other precious stones. And the city itself is built with pure gold, is what Revelation says. And this tabernacle is descending to fill the whole cosmos, to fill the entire world. And as it does so, the unmediated, unfiltered, glorious presence of God Fills the entire earth. And creation is restored. And sin and sorrow and death are obliterated. And all things are made new. And the tabernacle is a promise that you get to walk through the door. That the things that you most deeply long for are actually possible in this new world that God is creating that that deep longing that C.S. Lewis is describing can actually be met because the tabernacle is saying, listen, things were once right with the world and you miss it. You sense it. Like deep down in your bones, you sense the loss of that world in your sorrow and in your disappointment and in your anxiety and in your depression. And God is saying, listen, things used to be right in the world and I will make them right again. And I will make a way for you. To be with me in a world like that. That's the promise of the tabernacle. Now, here's the question. How? How is God going to achieve all of that? How is he going to fulfill this promise? The short answer is through the furniture. That makes sense, right? Through the furniture. Through the furniture of the tabernacle. The way that you arrange the furniture in your home shows what is important to you. When, uh, <clears throat> when we were in grad school in St. Louis, we had some neighbors who kept their television on a cart in the closet. And we knew that they kept their television on a cart in the closet because they lived upstairs from us and when they would get it out, we could hear them rolling it around in their apartment. And they would only bring it out on special occasions like to watch the Super Bowl or to have a movie night with friends or whatever. But if you come into our apartment You will notice that in our living room the focal point of our living room is the television because we place a much higher importance on television than our friends in grad school did the way that we arranged our furniture shows what was important to us they didn't really care about television that much we care about it a lot more maybe too much if you walk into our apartment right now you will notice um, that right in the hallway there's this little white uh like table thingy and on top of that is this lifetime supply bottle of Uh, of hand sanitizer we call it rubby scrubby with our kids and the reason that we do that the way that we arrange our furniture shows what's important to us because there are a lot of wonderful things about New York City but one of the not so wonderful things about New York City is that it is a germ factory and we have small children who also happen to be germ factories and germ collectors and so we put that there as a fixture in our home because every time we walk through the door we want our kids to know hey you got you got to put on rubby scrubby take off your shoes and put on ruby scrubby because we want to eradicate germs in our home, right? The way that we arrange our furniture shows what's important to us. Television is important to us. Cleanliness and health are important to us. And when you enter into the tabernacle, the way that God arranges the furniture in his dwelling place shows what is important to him. We read in uh, chapter 45, this is a long passage, about all the different things that are inside the tabernacle. There's a diagram for it in your handout. You can look at it. At the very heart of the tabernacle is this place called the Most Holy Place, or it's other other times referred to as the Holy of Holies. And that is the place where the glory of God dwelt. His unmediated, glorious presence was there. But there were all sorts of barriers between you and the Holy of Holies that you couldn't just waltz in there There were all sorts of barriers between the people and the presence of God. There were curtains and basins and lampstands and tables. And right by the front door is this giant bronze altar. And God putting the altar there, God arranging the furniture in this particular way, is his way of saying if you want to enter into this holy place, if you want to be in my presence, there will be blood. It's his way of showing what's important to him. And, and that's really not the answer that we want. Because we all, if we're honest, want to be able to make our way to God on our own terms. Want to be able to make our way to God in the way that we decide and not in the way that he decides. There, in most of us, there is a religious impulse. And in this religious impulse, we think, if I do the things that I'm supposed to do, then God will have to let me in. He will have to bless me if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I share my faith, if I serve the poor, then God must bless me. He must let me into his presence. But the altar gets up in your face about that a little bit. Because if you were an Israelite and and you wanted to draw near to God and you go to the tabernacle, you walk in and you don't, what you don't see is a space to pray. And what you don't see is a scroll of scripture to read and meditate on. And what you don't see is a pagan to evangelize. What you see is a place of slaughter. That's God's way of saying, listen, if you want to come into my presence, if you want to draw near to me, there's going to be blood. Blood must be shed. And, and that really um, gets in the face of the religious impulse that we have. But, but some of us also have a, a bit of a spiritual impulse where we say, well, I'm not really religious. I'm not really interested in imposing a grid of spiritual activities on me or on anyone else, but I am a spiritual person. And, and so I, I, do, I do long to connect with God. And so I have sort of figured out what works for me and I'm happy for you to figure out what works for you. And however you understand God, you find the right way For you to tap into that and access that as a resource for you to make your life better. In other words, it's another way of saying, I want to set the terms. I want to relate to God the way that I want to relate to God. The way that I think I should be able to relate to God. And the problem with that is that God sets this giant altar at the door of the tabernacle. That you, he's basically saying, you can't just come to me in your own terms, that I must set the terms, that if you want to be in my presence, you can't just make it up as you go along. Blood must be shed. You have to come through the blood. And God is, is not apologetic about this in the least, that he does not back away from his holiness and what that requires. Because the altar is not in the back of the tabernacle or in the basement or shoved on a cart in a... Closet somewhere. It's front and center. You can't miss it when you walk in. And and I think we are um, a bit taken aback by the bloodiness of all of it. We think, how could God be so bloodthirsty? Why does He require blood to go into His presence? I mean, thousands upon thousands of bulls and goats were slaughtered on this altar, and we think, I thought God was gracious and forgiving. What gives? Why does this have to be the way that it is? And the reason is because, is because that is not how holiness works. That if you want to enter into the presence of someone who is holy, you have to go through a cleansing process. We've talked about this before. If you want to go meet with the president in the Oval Office, you can't just waltz in there. You have to go through a cleansing process. You will have to be, uh, they will have to do background checks. You will have to be patted down. You uh, will have to go through metal detectors and run your bags and belongings through metal detectors. Like, you have to go through a cleansing process to enter into the presence of someone who is holy. And the blood is the same thing here. It is the cleansing process. See, the, the presence of the blood is not the truly jarring thing here in this passage. The truly jarring thing is not that there's blood required to be in His presence, but it's, it's that He actually allows us to be in His presence at all. Because what the tabernacle teaches us about God is that He is the kind of God who wants to be with the people who are His enemies. Who wants to be with the people who disobey Him, who rebel against Him, sometimes flagrantly. That God is the kind of God who wants to be with the people who will be the the very reason for His own Son's death. That... The God who makes no apology for his holiness, the God who puts an altar at his front door, is also the God who sends his own son to be slaughtered to save his enemies. When John opens his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 14, he talks about how Jesus, the word, took on flesh And dwelt among us. Do you know what that word in the Greek is when he says he dwelt among us? He tabernacled. He tabernacled. That when Jesus came, he came and he tabernacled. He he became the place where the unmediated, glorious presence of God dwells. That he is the God behind all the barriers in the tabernacle. But not only is he the God behind all the barriers, he is the way through all the barriers. He's the way through them. He's the way to deal once and for all with the problem of sin. The author of Hebrews is reflecting on what goes on in the tabernacle, and he talks about Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the single sacrifice for all time to cleanse us from sin. In other words, his death is the true sacrifice, that all other sacrifices, are point, they're signposts, they're pointing to this one ultimate and true sacrifice. That it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses you and makes you fit, makes me fit to enter into the unmediated, glorious presence of God. And it's that and that alone that does it. That when you put your trust in Him, there are no more barriers. Nothing stands between you and God and he welcomes you into his presence with joy. Nothing can keep you from him. Not your pride in the greatest thing you've ever done and not your shame in the worst thing that you've ever done. Nothing can keep you from him. And this is the ark. This is this is the bend of the book of Exodus. And quite frankly, the bend of the Bible. This is the mission of God in the Bible. Not merely to, to free his people from slavery. It includes that, but it's not merely that. It's to bring them into his presence and to make all things new. C.S. Lewis said If I find in myself longings which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. When you find yourself disappointed because this life does not satisfy you, I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Because I think what's actually happening in your disappointment is it's your heart's way of telling you there's another world. There's another world. Don't ignore that disappointment. Don't drown it out. Don't press into it. And bring it to Jesus because the promise of the tabernacle is that is that your disappointment is not a lie it's actually the truest thing about you because it's telling you there's another world and the tabernacle is promising it's coming God is busy remaking that new world and he wants you there with him do you know that? (音楽) ALLEGIO USB